Hi, I'm Beth Kuehl, your executive career coach and host of Breakthroughs, Smart Strategies for Business and Career Growth. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome two preeminent experts on cybersecurity, Pablo Brewer and David Perlman, to discuss the daunting yet fascinating topic of misinformation, disinformation, fake news, and why it matters to companies, especially now. Pablo is a global, highly accomplished, and decorated executive of cybersecurity technology and innovation professional with unmatched expertise and exemplary leadership in the areas of innovation, cybersecurity, and network vulnerability. He is currently the Chief Information Security Officer of Helm Services. Pablo is a 22-year veteran of the U.S. Navy with tours that include military director of U.S. Special Operations Command Donovan Group and senior military advisor and innovation officer to Softworks, the National Security Agency. Pablo is also the Department of Defense Cyber Cup and DEF CON Black Badge winner and has been faculty at the Naval Postgraduate School, National University, California State University, as well as a visiting scientist at Carnegie Mellon. Pablo is also a co-founder of the Cognitive Security Collaborative and co-author of the Adversarial Misinformation and Influence Tactics and Techniques Framework. Welcome, Pablo. Thanks so much for having me, Beth. I'm happy to be here. Terrific. And now to introduce my other guest. David Perlman is an expert in how identity influences social-emotional cognition. He's an accomplished and highly respected senior researcher and consultant with 20 years of experience in synergizing tech, data science, social behavioral neuroscience, research management, and team building. He's an innovator in the emerging field of misinfosec, cybersecurity, and with his focus on social networks, influence, and artificial intelligence ethics. David possesses a PhD in psychology and neuroscience of emotion, decision-making, and meditation focus on large data sets from functional brain imaging and biobehavioral measures. Thanks for coming on the show, David. I'm really glad to have you here. I can't wait to learn from you and Pablo. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm really happy to be here. The recent Wall Street Journal article, where both of you were extensively quoted, talks about the threat for business from disinformation. Could you explain what is this disinformation you refer to? Sure. Disinformation is information that is either partially false or true, but presented under a false context. Uh, and that can be dangerous for all sorts of reasons for businesses. It can lead to uh, all sorts of uh, malicious types of attacks. Uh, some of these attacks have been referred to as social engineering in the past. Okay. So you say disinformation is a new weapon. Could you unpack that a little bit? So it's psychologically driven attacks. I'm quoting you. What is yeah. an attack in this context, Pablo? Yeah, so it, there's nothing new about disinformation. We've been conducting disinformation types of attacks since we could draw paintings on cave walls. What's new now is that the technology has enabled something that we haven't had before, which is for the general populace to be able to reach a mass audience. And in a day and age where a company's stock price may be affected by something that happens on social media networks, uh, it's really uh, a, a concern for companies to be able to make sure that their name is intact, not only of the company, but of their senior executives, so that it doesn't negatively affect the business. Mm -hmm. so, this is going to be for, I think we'll just go to David, is, is that really then a threat? How serious is that threat for business? I mean, how bad could it be, David? Well, I think we're already starting to see some examples of what this might look like. And if you imagine this as the 
you know, the, like, what is it? The nose that, of the, the nose that gets under the door before the whole thing squeezes its way in. Mm-hmm. We saw just recently this incident where there was a lot of stink about Wayfair. There were completely unfounded rumors that came from a certain well-known online group that I, uh, I shall not mention by name here in order to avoid continuing to spread disinformation. But those, uh, the, you know, the types of concerns that were prominent in this sort of online conspiracy community suddenly broke out into the real world and became an issue for Wayfair. And, uh, you know, those things, despite sort of a, a fairly traditional PR response from their own people, it, it's still out there, you know, it's circulating on social media. It hasn't really been cleaned up at all. If you search on the company's name in certain forums, you primarily get people that are still talking about these problems. So, you know, we haven't seen any really clear indicators to tell us how the company was affected by that. And I'm sure that any company would want to keep that secret, even if there were effects. But if you imagine that and you imagine that whoever might be responsible for attacks like that sort of continues to refine their techniques and to try something else a little later and, you know, see how it goes. Eventually, you can imagine this working up into something that's truly devastating for, I mean, for a business, for an individual, for a celebrity, for anything. David, do you have another example? Well, there, I mean, I think we're all pretty familiar with a lot of disinformation traveling around in the political space. But what we've seen in the private space, sometimes it's hard to separate private sector from political. So, for instance, there were a lot of concerns about the security of networking products from certain Chinese manufacturers. There were concerns that because of the close relationship between the government and the military and private uh, electronics manufacturers in China, that there might be backdoors. So there were some some sanctions that were implemented. And uh, the chairman of Huawei, I think it was, pretty much said without providing any evidence that the same thing was true of America. American companies had exactly the same kind of relationship with the government and therefore you're screwed anyway. So you might as well just not care. As Pablo said, disinformation doesn't necessarily mean that a statement is completely false. In fact, there's almost always some sort of a, a sliver of truth. Otherwise, there's not really anything to go on. The truth might be a factual truth. It might be an emotional truth. It might just be something that reminds people of something else they heard about. So I think we all know that there was a lot of um, controversy, let's say, about you know certain data retrieval activities of the U.S. government. I'll just say delicately. And, uh, you know, there was there was an element of truth there. But just because one thing is true doesn't mean everything else that sounds vaguely like it is true. I mean, it might be it might not be. I don't have access to any sort of inside information about that. But it made it very easy for the, you know, the chairman of that one company to basically try to reinstate their competitive advantage by accusing another company of doing the exact same thing. So that was another example I can think of that uh, it kind of went under the radar, but from someone who's looking at things from the point of view of disinformation attacks, that was a very striking example that could have some pretty serious implications. Could either of you explain what is this kernel of truth and what does it do? Is it a tactic that these conspiracy theorists use intentionally or is it something else? Yeah, so what happens is a lot of these misinformation attacks really target the pre-existing biases of of the audience. So uh, the audience is already predisposed to believe certain things. 
regardless of where you are on the, the socio-political spectrum. Uh, and so it, it plays to your existing biases. Uh, and there has to be a kernel of truth there because most people are going to go through and do some digging. Uh, and so if there's nothing to support a claim uh, made by a misinformation attack, then they're just going to go, well, this is a one-off. Maybe this wasn't serious or, or maybe there's nothing there. However, if there's even the hint of part of it being true, then the mind wants to make logical connections whether or not there's a dot there to connect to. Uh, and so if you can uh, if you can think that there is a secret sex dungeon in a pizzeria in uh, the Northeast and you look up and you find out that that pizzeria does exist in the Northeast, well, it's not that far a leap to go, well, then something may be happening there. Uh, and so there has to be kind of the, the start of a string to pull on for people to make that cognitive jump and connect dots that may otherwise not be there. What can cybersecurity do to protect companies and to prevent warfare in cyberspace? Uh, Pablo, do you want to address this? Sure, I'll take a stab at this. So uh, the, the problem with these misinformation attacks is they don't target a technical system. Uh, and so there really isn't a technical solution. Now, a lot of these misinformation attacks are aided by technology. And so certainly social media, Facebook and Twitter allow you to propagate the, this misinformation and reach a much larger audience than you might otherwise reach. But to look for a solution in that technology is just setting yourself up for failure. Now, certainly the technology can be used to help you identify things that are uh, likely to be misinformation due to the way they they propagate either a time series cascade, propagation-based cascade. And so those can give indicators. However, they're never going to give you the ideal solution. So computational systems aren't going to be good and technology is not going to be good about editorials. It's not going to be good about sarcasm. So really, this is not a silver bullet problem. This is a thousand bullet problem. There's, there's some societal changes that are needed. There are some technology uh, tools that could be used. Uh, and realistically, we're going to need a lot of legislation in order to fix this problem. So is there anything that an individual could do to help prevent this cyber warfare? Well, as, as consumers, there's a couple of things that we can do. The first one is to recognize when we're being targeted and triggered. As David pointed out, most of this misinformation is meant to engage the populace on an emotional level before our, our rational cognitive skills really kick in. So if you're enraged or elated by something you see on social media, realize that that was probably the intended effect. Take a deep breath, reread what you just read, maybe find an alternate source, discuss it with other people, consider the source that's coming from. Is it reputable? Is it not reputable? And if your instant visceral reaction is to either respond or forward or like, realize that that was probably the intended uh, effect of that message and maybe just don't fall prey to it. So could you give us an update? What's going on in this domain? There's quite a lot going on. Obviously, a lot of people are talking about this and it's become a cottage industry and maybe even a real industry ever since 2016. Uh, I think the, the things that I find most exciting are there's some very quiet work going on behind the scenes that we've been involved in that really has to build, has to do with taking a long view and building out the infrastructure that you know that a response to this problem would need in the future developing the language to use to talk about it developing 
the principles that the tools would be based on, which is sort of a precursor to even building the tools themselves. You know, if you're going to start trying to detect things on a social network, what even is it that you're trying to build? That's what I mean by the principles that the tools would be based on. So some of this, uh, well, I, we can give you some links to some of the projects that will go uh, on the page. But in particular, there's something that are working around the word misinfosec to develop a security approach to misinformation. Uh, and there's a framework that goes with that that's called Amit. And those are sort of, there's a website for that. Hmm, that's interesting. Pablo, would you like to expound upon that? So as David mentioned, there's kind of a lot of movement in this uh, in this field. Uh, the first thing is the fact that it's gone from being kind of a, a back of the office discussion amongst intelligence community professionals to something that now gets covered on the nightly news. So everybody knows what misinformation is or has heard of misinformation, even if they they argue the benefits or, or what the specific attacks are. So the first step is is awareness that there's a problem. Uh, separately from that, you're seeing a lot of interest in academia and researching why this works and why we're seeing a resurgence in an attack during peacetime that formerly was attributed only to nation states and a wartime environment. So there's a lot of movement research happening in that area. Uh, and then the last one is, I think that there's a recognition by internet companies and the social media networks in particular, that this is a problem uh, and it is something that they need to address. Now, to be fair, this is not something that uh, any one company is gonna be able to tackle on their own, neither Facebook nor Google nor Twitter is gonna be able to solve this problem on their own. Uh, but the first step is recognizing that there's a problem and getting together with uh, other people that are interested in solving this, getting together with academia and technology and policymakers to figure out what, what we as a society can do to address this issue. So should we be making pleas to our legislators? I mean, what should be writing letters to our senators and congressmen? And what, I have, what, you know, what do yeah, you think? I actually, I actually think we should. Um, you know, I think that the, the, uh, the platform companies, the social networks, a lot of these big tech companies, they uh, rightfully take a lot of criticism about a lot of the way that they've let these problems get out of hand. But there's one thing that I don't think they get enough credit for, which is that the leaderships have the leadership of many of these companies have actually indicated that they're very open to, you know, legal guidelines to sort of take some of the decision making making out of their hands because, you know, like obviously they're in sort of a among other things, I don't want to give them too much credit, but among other things, they're in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation where if you start cracking down on somebody, then somebody gets upset. But if you sort of have legal guidelines that they can fall back on, that actually makes things a lot safer for them. So I really do think that there's a lot of room for a lot of legislative movement here that would be a, a necessary but not sufficient for solving the problem. So what's changed over the years? What's the urgency now to be addressing this? If you use Google, if you use Amazon, if you use any of the big search engines, you are using social media and you are being tracked and you are being categorized. There are a couple of things that happen. So the first one is that, you know, in the 1980s, if you were an American and you came home and you got the news, your choices were ABC, CBS, and NBC. And so you could ad agree or disagree with the coverage. But when you went over the fence to talk to your neighbor, you would have a discussion and be able to, now with the internet, we have the ability to kind of tailor suit our information consumption for particular biases. So how will my 
neighbor and I go talk about any particular subject, we can see radically different coverage of the same topic, or in some cases, not even see the same topic. The next bit is that in the in the 80s, and even to some extent in the 90s, if you wanted to reach the American populace, you better be ahead of state, because ABC, CBS, and NBC were not going to put you on primetime TV to put out your message to sell uh, a car or to make a claim about your competitor's company. But now we leave, live in a world where any citizen can do that. We live in a world where Katy Perry, a singer, can reach twice as many people on any given day as the President of the United States and 50 times the number of people as the Prime Minister of Britain. And she doesn't have to worry about going through the political ramifications and lawyers to put out a message. So really, the ability to reach a mass populace, the ability to put ourselves within our own echo chamber, uh, both of those things matter. The other thing is not being aware of when we're reading something that's an editorial, when we're reading something that's an opinion, when we're reading something that's satire or even outright false, you don't necessarily know who put out that blog. The other thing I wanted to come back to just very briefly is the, the lack of use of social media. Um, and perhaps I'm guilty of this uh, to some of my previous uh, answers, but social media doesn't mean the, the Facebook and the Twitters alone. I challenge anyone who's not on social media to go do a Google search or go to Amazon and look for a product. And then as they go to other websites that they go to today, throughout the day, see if they don't get presented advertisements for exactly what they search for. If you use Google, if you use Amazon, if you use any of the big search engines, you are using social media and you are being tracked and you are being categorized. So it's clear from what you said that we're all being uh, watched or categorized, if you will. So even if we do a basic Google search for a recipe, um, it's clear that they have our data. Um, what's being done in, in terms of protecting the individual or the consumer? One of the things that really needs to be looked at again, and I know that the tech companies are not looking forward to the discussion, is re-examining uh, Section 230. So in the in the early 90s, the internet convinced Congress that they were not a media like radio and television and that they were a fledgling industry and they needed to be protected from that sort of regulation. Otherwise, they were going to stifle creativity. The reality is that in most places in the United States, people get their news from the internet these days, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or a website somewhere. Uh, and so Internet service providers have not been held to the same standards as media companies. There's no requirement to notify a consumer that an ad has been paid for, let alone who paid for it. So certainly if you listen to a radio or watch a television ad, they will tell you it's a paid political advertisement and who paid for it. That is not a requirement on the internet, and perhaps it should be. This uh, Section 230, I got to say, I am in agreement with Pablo about the you know the things that need to happen here but i will tell you that in the tech industry and for people inside of the industry here it's just a it's a flamingly hot controversial topic it makes a lot of sense that companies would want to take preventative measures to protect themselves from these bad actors and conspiracy theorists whose goal is clearly to wreak havoc on corporations but practically speaking, what can leadership do to ensure that their reputation, their credibility, and even their viability isn't completely upended by these criminals? Well, I'll second all the things that Pablo said. I think that, you know, if I had a chance to directly address corporate executives, I would say to them, 
yes, this is coming and you need to care about it. And I think that you're going to need a new kind of service. But even though that service doesn't exist yet, tell your PR people that this is something they should think about. Tell your cybersecurity people that this is something they should think about. You, you know, just get a dialogue going. Get as many people involved as possible because, you know, we're going to need a lot of smart minds to work on this problem. And we're going to need a lot of, you know... <laughs> Like the, the pocketbooks are going to have to open, you know, that no, the smart minds aren't going to work on it if nobody actually wants the service. So there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. We can we can wait until there's a, you know, a Pearl Harbor moment and everyone decides, oh, everything got blown up and now it's time to start addressing the problem. But obviously it would be better if corporations would take the necessary precautions to nip it in the bud before it explodes into something really catastrophic.